Today, uh, we're going to begin the conclusion of our series through the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And I say we'll begin our conclusion because it's going to take, take me two weeks to, uh, to finish this uh, message. But next Sunday, we will finish the series for sure, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise and all that. Fittingly, as we conclude this book, our topic will be the return of Christ which from Malachi's perspective would have included both the first coming where this prophecy was completed in part and the second coming where it will be completed in full. To be clear, some of our text today was fulfilled the first time Jesus came, but most of it will be fulfilled any day now um, when he comes again. Perspective is everything when it comes to how a person should view the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. His return will be the best news imaginable for the faithful remnant, but it will also be the worst news imaginable for everybody else. Last week, we discussed who the remnant is and how to become a part of it. So we need to keep that understanding firmly in mind as we discuss what today's text calls the great and terrible day of the Lord. And see, since the day is going to be great for some and terrible for many, It would be very important to understand which way it is going to be for you, great or terrible. Let's review just a little bit. Last week, we studied chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, where Malachi records, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. That's that remnant we've been talking about. And the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. From this text last week, I drew out seven Remnant realities, which I'll quickly read through without further commentary. Number one, the remnant gathers. So important. Number two, the remnant is remembered by God. Number three, the remnant fears God. Number four, the remnant belongs to God. Number five, the remnant is spared by God. Number six, the remnant is distinguished from others. And number seven, the remnant serves God. Now, the big idea we need to remember from this text as we go into today is this. There is a remnant, and this remnant will be spared, or more specifically, rescued at the return of Christ. In other words, the day of the Lord will be great, not terrible, for the remnant. Distinguishing attribute of this remnant is repentant faith, or what we might call life-changing faith. In other words, the true remnant of God's people, his sons and daughters, those who belong to him, those whose names are written in his book, are those who truly believe and whose lives are therefore changed by that belief. We are justified by faith alone, and true faith results in changed lives. This is the saving grace of God, which is bestowed upon those who have the faith to receive it. As we also discussed last week, the remnant of Malachi's time was looking forward in faith and anticipation to the coming Messiah. And now with more information, we look back to the Messiah, that is Christ, in faith for salvation. But either way, it is specifically faith in Jesus Christ, the only Savior, that determines whether anyone is included in the remnant or not. This brings us to today. And picking it up from the last verse of chapter 3, Malachi writes this of God. This, is, this, this verse we somewhat talked about last week, but it's, it's a turn. It's a, it's a spot where we pivot. So let's start with verse 18 of chapter 3. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And here we go back into direct quotation, chapter 4, where God says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. 
But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. All right. So we will cover half of this text today and the other half next week. Now, in a nutshell, God is working here to instill in his people a certain kind of fear or reverence for his return. If you will remember, I explained last week that there are three Hebrew words for fear, and I pointed out that the one used in these verses means to have a deep reverence or respect. As the remnant, we should keep a sense of awe, of holy anticipation and worshipful reverence for the return of Christ. I also mentioned that those outside the remnant should honestly be experiencing the other kind of fear, which are more akin to terror and dread. But in reality, fear or reverence comes from belief. If we believe God, we will revere the return of Jesus Christ, which he has promised. Even as the remnant, those who are promised a triumphant rescue in his return, there is still a certain kind of fear that we should hold in our hearts regarding that day. It's just kind of like, whoa, you know, it could be today. Am I ready? It could be today. Is there anyone I need to talk to? The remnant holds close to heart the fact that Christ is coming again. Are you the remnant? Interestingly today, many who may or may not truly be a part of the remnant are sort of revering the return, but in the wrong way. Sometimes these folks are called doomsday preppers. Often there is a religious connotation involved in their prepping. And even though I can tend a little bit that way myself. For me, it isn't so much about the return or some kind of doomsday moment as it is, well, really, it's just an excuse to deck out my truck. But I mean, (laughs) I do like to be prepared in a Boy Scout kind of way. But still, let me be clear. The only kind of prepping for the return of Christ that is taught in God's Word is a spiritual kind of prepping. The Bible never teaches Christians to stockpile food and water or build bunkers or form militias in relation to things that may or may not happen before the return of Christ. Because, you see, we have been promised a rescue in his return. We're, about, we're to be about the Father's business until he comes to get us. Not trying to be prepared to dodge the fire and brimstone. And somebody says, oh, Pastor Mark is a pre-tribulation rapture guy. Not exactly, certainly not in a Tim LaHaye left behind books, secret rapture, followed by a second chance tribulation kind of way, no. No, that's not where I stand on it, nor am I absolutely sure what I believe about most of it, nor will I ever be sure. And by the way, stop listening to people who say it's all very clear and there's no room for debate. That's a good reason to listen to somebody else just trying to save you some trouble. I don't know what I don't know. But what I do know, without any shadow of doubt, is that the Bible teaches throughout its pages that on the great and terrible day of the Lord, His remnant will be rescued while everyone else will face judgment and wrath. Of that I am very sure. And I think the Bible is also clear that we should expect Christ at any, t- at any time. So I tend away from anything that means it couldn't possibly happen today. If I see something in the Bible that seems to say that something else still needs to happen before he returns, well, I hold on to that very loosely. Because what is clear to me is that I should be ready for an immediate return at any time. And see, I think that affects the way I live. Just as it did for the apostles, who mostly seemed to believe it could be any day. By the way, when people ask what I believe about the end times, eschatology, if you want the big word, I just tell them to read 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5. That's it. 
That's all you got, Pastor? That's all I got. Just read it. That's what I believe. Most of the rest of what people will uh, try to map out is conjecture based on symbolic apocalyptic language, mostly from Daniel and the Revelation, over which there is great debate on what may have already occurred, as well as what it will all literally mean in the real world. I anchor my belief about the end times to what is written in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5. Because this is one of the only places where the Bible speaks plainly about what is clearly going to happen at the end. So again, what am I sure of? I am sure that Jesus Christ is coming back and that when he does, it will be a great day for the faithful remnant and a terrible day for everybody else. We could be sure of this, even if all we had were Malachi chapter 4. Let's get into it. I see in our text. Five steps to return reverence. We'll cover the first three steps today. Now, what I mean by this heading, five steps to return reverence, is that if we will apply the truths of these last few verses in Malachi, we will gain a reverence for the return of Christ, which is also part of returning to a proper reverence for God. There's a bit of a double meaning here. Because two things happen when we revere the return. When we believe God is going to do what he says he is going to do, we revere him. Which is part of how we can return to him or show that we are still his remnant. And remember from earlier that when we return to God, he returns to us. Let me state once more that we absolutely ought to have a healthy fear in the sense of reverence for the return of Christ. We ought to live our lives in awe of the fact that the end is near and that our master could return at any moment to rescue the remnant and pour out wrath on everyone else. We ought to have the day of the Lord on our minds and in our hearts, and this ought to affect how we live in a very profound way. This may well be the biggest difference between the weakness of the modern church and the strength of the early church. They revered the return. Do we? One more little side point, if you'll indulge me. Consider this. When you don't believe God created it all, supernaturally. When you don't believe God created it all supernaturally, you also won't believe that he's going to end it all supernaturally. You might think, I don't know, climate change is going to do it or something else. What I mean is this. People don't believe in miracles anymore. Let me try this angle. What if we didn't have the Bible? Wouldn't you look at the earth and the heavens and the stars and all that exists, and even in knowing that you have a soul, wouldn't you conclude that some unfathomable higher power must have done something to cause all this? And wouldn't you also wonder if that creator has in mind an end game for what he has made. Like if there's a God who could make all of this, how hard is it to believe that he could roll it all up like a scroll and start over? Not hard. But some people can't get their head around what the Bible says is going to happen at the end because they don't believe what the Bible says about how it began. Some people just flat out don't believe in the supernatural. Listen, it's true that we live in a very natural world where things normally occur according to, a natu- according, to, according to natural and observable laws. But how did it first happen that things were ordered in that way? The point is that what is natural cannot have created itself by definition. For something to come from nothing, something supernatural must have happened. In other words, what is natural must have had a supernatural beginning. And so it is reasonable to conclude that what had a supernatural beginning will also have a supernatural ending. Besides this, God has done mind-blowing supernatural things at different points in history. And according to his revelation of himself and his plans, the Bible, those days of supernatural things are coming again. If you understand what God has done in the past, be it in creation, or say in the time of the Exodus um, with the Egyptian plagues, which by the way mirror many of the things written in in, uh, Revelation that would happen again, the parting of the Red Sea, and other 
uh, such earth-shattering miracles, which all happened in a relatively short amount of time, or be it in the resurrection of Christ and the supernatural events that, that followed during that season, then you'll not struggle to believe what God is going to do at the end. What I'm saying is that days are coming that are going to blow our minds. God is going to show up at the end and do great and terrible things. When we believe this, we revere this. And that was just something I wanted to say. So thanks. More importantly, let's get into our biblical text and we'll find five steps to return reverence. The first step to gaining a proper reverence for the return of Christ is this. Number one, believe God sees every person as either righteous or wicked. For the end of chapter three, so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And we covered this verse last week, but remember that God distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked. And there is clearly no third category. Righteousness is demonstrated by service to God and wickedness is demonstrated by a lack of service to God. But as we discussed, that does not mean that righteousness is, is granted or is gained by service. Scripture is very clear that righteousness is granted upon our faith in Jesus Christ. Following through with service to God proves whether this has actually happened for you or not. But know this, in God's eyes, you are either righteous, having been washed clean by faith in Christ and what he did for you on the cross, or you are still in the human default mode, which is nothing short of uttered wickedness in the holy eyes of God. Most of us know this, but I don't think we usually think about how it relates to Christ's return, which could happen today. The simple fact is that today, right now, God actually sees every single person on earth as either righteous or wicked. People are either saved or they are unsaved. Think about that. Think about what this means. As we discussed last week, your name is either written in his book or it is not. You are either declared righteous, justified before God through your faith, in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, or right now, today, on the day that the Lord could return, you are still seen by God as wicked. By the way, the message of this world is 100% the message of Satan, the deceiver, the one who wants to keep as many people as possible from understanding the truth. What are the main messages of the world today. Whatever they are, you can be sure they are lies. Whatever you hear in the church where the Word of God is preached, it will be the opposite of what you hear in the world. And if it is not the opposite, you should realize that such a church has been infiltrated by the world, and you should therefore find a different church. How can I be so sure? Because Satan is the prince of the power of the air, which means he controls the airwaves or wherever else the message of this world is being propagated. And he has never once, never once allowed the truth to be his message. Never. The Bible says all he knows how to do is lie. You will always hear a different message in Christ's church than you will hear in Satan's world. And you'll hear this contrary message every single Sunday. You may have noticed some people can't handle it. I hope you stick it out. There's no way, there's no way to build a bridge from truth to lies. I can try to build a bridge to people in love, but I cannot build a bridge to the lies they have believed. More than ever, the preaching of the Word of God will leave the world with their mouths open, aghast that anyone would believe such things. Still, we preach the truth of God's Word, come what may. So today's world-infuriating truth, God sees every person as either righteous or wicked. Further, according to what God has said, if you're still in that wicked state at the moment of Christ's return, there'll be no further opportunity for you to repent and believe. Your position before God at the return will remain permanent for all of eternity because you will have arrived at the moment of final 
judgment after which there is no appeal. This is what Malachi means when he tells us that God will distinguish once and for all between the righteous and the wicked on that day. And now the truth gets even tougher. Because the second step to gaining a proper reverence for the return of Christ is this. Believe the wicked will be burned to ashes. Okay, pastor, did you really just say that? Did you have to make this one of your main points? Did you have to put it on the screen? Friends, I've worded this point no more harshly than Scripture demands. Chapter 4, verse 1. God himself says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. These are the words of the Lord, and we need to believe them. You will simply not have a proper reverence or fear of the return of Christ if you do not take these words to heart. Who am I to water down or disbelieve what God says? He says the day of the Lord will be like a fiery furnace for the wicked and they will be set ablaze. Listen to those words again. They will be set ablaze. And God says this fire will be such that neither root nor branch will remain, but they will be like chaff. Malachi's audience was thinking of the type of fire that might burn their crops um, or their produce. And in those fires, at least perennial plants or trees might possibly survive to bear fruit the next year. For instance, if there had been a fire in one of their vineyards, the root of the vine would have likely survived. And that meant that later restoration could occur. The effect of such a fire was temporary, seasonal. This is also the case oftentimes with God's discipline in our lives. And this has been the case with God's discipline of Judah up to this point in history. God just keeps taking them back, right? Over and over again. Oh, but not so with this final judgment spoken of here. No, at the return of Christ, it's all over, folks. Not even root or branch will be left unconsumed. That's why, in my view, your bunkers and stockpiles will be worthless once Christ returns. There are no second chances once Jesus comes back. Not from what I see in Scripture. I just don't see limbo years and second chances after some kind of um, partial return. No, I see one single return of Christ, and it all happens right then and there. When Christ returns, the wicked will be set ablaze and they will burn in such a way that their destruction is eternal without the possibility of recovery. I'll explain more about the soul in a minute. The idea here is that there's no further chance to return to God, that neither root nor branch will be left, but rather that they will burn up to nothing like the dusty leftovers of threshed wheat, the chaff, which was known to disintegrate in an instantaneous poof of fire. Now, I'm aware that some people try to write off the so-called Old Testament God. Oh, it's Old Testament. That's just the Old Testament. As if God changed or somehow declawed in our age. But the truth is God is no more tame as he is presented in the New Testament. And I'll prove it. Let's look at how the Apostle Peter put it from 2 Peter 3, verses 7 and 10. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. When the writer of Hebrews, also in the New Testament, said, our God is a consuming fire, he was not joking. And folks, it changes everything. When you believe God means what he says, what has God said? He said the wicked will be burned to ash. And who are these wicked, arrogant, evildoers again? They are every person other than the remnant. That is, everyone who has not been made righteous before God. And how does one become righteous before God? By faith in His suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Every person who does not put his hope and trust in God's salvation, who is Jesus, will not be saved. He will not be distinguished as righteous, but as wicked. And they will be burned up like chaff on the great and terrible day of the Lord. So after the wicked are burned up like chaff, what is left in the analogy? The kernel of wheat, the fruit, the goodness of God, 
is left. And that's the whole point, you see. In order for this earth to become a perfectly fruitful paradise once again, all that is less than righteous must be burned away. And the Bible says that includes every person who's not justified by faith in Christ. The remnant will remain as remnants do. And they will prove to have been the ones who served God, which means they bore fruit. After our rescue from fire and destruction, we will then be replanted on a recreated earth where all things have been made new. And we will inhabit this new earth, which will be made to be like the current heaven, even as the new Jerusalem comes down and as God makes his home among men. That's why in verse 3, God says to the remnant, you will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. It's a little known fact among many Christians today, that our eternal home is actually a newly made earth. And so in that sense, we will be symbolically treading over the ashes of that which was judged and burned away on the day of the Lord. This is important inasmuch as God is a God of justice, and not a God who simply quits on the universe. When you think of your eternal home, picture more a restored Garden of Eden than a floating around in the clouds type of existence. Why is this important right now? Well, understanding that our eternal home is a new heaven-like earth is important for our interpretation of verse 3, where it says evildoers will be ashes under our feet. You might have thought that odd if you assumed that you were ultimately headed to some other place in a galaxy far, far away or an undiscovered country somewhere beyond the outer rim of space. No, our paradise will be a remade earth not some other dimension or city in the clouds. This earth will be redeemed and the old earth will be as ashes under our feet, symbolically speaking. This all points back to their previous question in Malachi, where is the God of justice? And remember the answer is this, he is coming. What is he coming to do? He is coming to rescue the remnant, but also to judge and to purify this earth of every impurity. This is the justice God is bringing and his justice will be complete. God is still talking to the faithful remnant here in verse 3. And even though they've been faithful, they've been utterly defeated in life, you see. And that repeatedly. They've been tread upon. They've, they've endured a cursed earth where bad things happen to good people. Even the remnant of Judah had not received all of God's promises because the majority of their brothers and sisters were not faithful. So as a group, they've been conquered and captured, displaced, dispersed, persecuted, and oppressed. But God is telling the remnant of the faithful that the day will come when they will be so triumphant and victorious over those who seem to prosper at their expense that their heavenly reward will actually be built upon the ashes of those who persecuted them. And if you're thinking, yeah, but... But Malachi's audience is dead now, so they didn't receive this promise. Note that the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that when Jesus returns, the faithful dead will rise first. They will be given new bodies made to last forever, and they will receive this promise just as sure as we will, regardless of when Christ returns. The destruction of every wicked thing on earth is the victory and the justice of which Malachi writes, and the righteous will receive this new earth as a reward. That includes the original audience of this book. Indeed, on that day, they will tread on the ashes of the wicked. We probably cannot fully understand the need for verse 3 in the American church today. But I think Christians in North Korea or in Nigeria right now would understand and appreciate God's promise that they will one day tread over the ashes of those who are their oppressors. People who curse God and his remnant will get their comeuppance, folks. God's justice will come upon the arrogant and the evildoers, upon those who are distinguished by God as wicked. And when that ultimate justice comes, they will find no more opportunity for grace. They will be as ashes under the feet of the remnant who will reign over them with Christ for eternity. Now, does this mean the wicked will cease to exist since it basically says they will be burned to ash? No. That would be so much easier. And in my limited understanding, I tend to wish that were the case. I find myself wishing the Jehovah's Witnesses were right on this. 
like them, I loathe the concept of an eternal hell. I hate it. It kills me. An eternal hell is impossible for me to fathom. If it doesn't bother you, you haven't thought about it enough. But much to my distress, this reference about being burned up like chaff only addresses what happens in the moment of his return. Basically what happens to their physical bodies. And in many places, the Bible states clearly that the souls of the wicked will not die. Rather, they will be, res- they, they will be reserved for fiery torment in hell. The Apostle John even indicates that they will be given resurrected bodies for the sake of this judgment. John 5, 29, as hard as eternal torment is for me to imagine, and as much as I hate even thinking about it, the Bible simply states this as fact repeatedly, and I don't get to dismiss it. Who am I to disbelieve what God has said? Do I set the rules? Am I God? No. So maybe you're starting to see why we should maintain a healthy fear or a holy reverence when it comes to the return of Christ, which could happen today. Some of you are more worried about aliens or zombies. I mentioned climate change, World War III. Thinking about all those things a whole lot, seldom considering the return of Christ. But I can assure you that if any of those things come true, they will not be as profound or permanent as the fire God has promised to bring on that great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, are you ready to go get lunch, or would you like me to get some better news? You want, a little, you want some more, a little better news, I hope? Okay, a third step to revering the return is this. Believe the righteous will be healed and illumined for eternity. Believe the righteous will be healed and illumined for eternity. From verse 2, but for you who fear my name, the remnant, The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Here we have one of the biggest buts in the Bible. Sorry. But seriously, look at how this turns. God says, but those who fear me have their names written in my book of remembrance, chapter 3, verse 16. And they belong to me as my sons and daughters, verse 17. They are therefore distinguished as the righteous remnant, verse 18. And here in chapter 4, verse 2, God says, Ultimately, because their faith is in Christ, my Messiah, who is the Son of Righteousness, they will not only be rescued from the fire on that great and terrible day, but they will also experience eternal healing and illumination provided by Christ Himself. Let's unpack verse 2 in a little bit more detail because this is so important. First of all, this is a promise to whom? Look at it. To those who fear my name. As we established from the previous verses, these are the people who believe God, who put their faith in who he is and what he has promised. His remnant. Is that you? Is that the way you live your life? With reverence or faith in Christ, with a desire to serve him as Lord? If so, then please understand that you don't have to fear what is coming for the wicked. And please understand that these promises are for you. Now, how do we know that this son of righteousness risen with healing in its wings is Jesus Christ? Now, you know, this is written hundreds of years, about 400 years before he came. How do we know that it's a reference prophetically to him? We can see in our text that this is the rescuer, the rescuer. This is the rescuer promised to the remnant. But how do we know this rescuer is Jesus Well, from the rest of the Bible, who is referred to as the light of the world? Like the sun, Jesus, who is risen and and whose risenness will we celebrate in just a few weeks? Jesus, who is the great physician, the ultimate healer of all those who believe? Jesus. How do I know this is a reference to Jesus? Well, there are several facts about this phrase that point straight to him. This entity or person is likened to the sun, and specifically a risen sun, which conveys the image of light that overcomes darkness. The picture is that of a dawning sunrise. And when did Jesus rise from the dead, overcoming darkness? At dawn. And what was achieved through his resurrection? Ultimate healing, including eternal life for those who believe. 
What about this idea of illumination? Well, throughout the Old Testament, God is often likened to sunlight. And living here in the PNW, I have taken this more and more to heart. I mean, I almost have to be careful not to worship the sun some days, okay? Just a little confession moment there. But seriously, when God is poetically likened to the sun in Scripture, it is always a picture of the birth of a new day in which God brings light to a dark world. The ultimate occurrence of such a thing will be the return of Christ. But throughout Scripture, this metaphor was used of God showing up. We could look at Deuteronomy 33, where the Bible says God dawned over the people, and he's poetically pictured as the sun bursting forth over the mountains, shedding light onto the valley where the people found themselves. Isaiah also speaks of the Lord in this way. Several times in chapter 9, he envisions the Messiah to come, saying, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Also in Isaiah 60, starting verse 19, The prophet writes, the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of sorrow will end. Then will all your people be righteous and they will possess the Lord forever. This is parallel to John's revelation in which the apostle records the new Jerusalem, that eternal city, which will be our heaven on the new earth from chapter 21, verse 23. And the city had no need of the sun. Or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb, Jesus. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying, the wicked, shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. As mentioned... Jesus also made this claim of himself in John 8, 12, when he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, eternal life. Can you imagine knowing the Old Testament as well as the Jewish Jewish audience knew it and actually hearing Jesus say this of himself, I am the light. (laughs) Wow. See, they knew exactly who Jesus was claiming to be. He was claiming to be the son of righteousness spoken of in Malachi, the promised one, the healer, the illuminator, the one to whom they had placed their hope for eternal salvation. And when Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, prophesied at his birth, he said this about Jesus, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah, John's father, calls Jesus the sunrise from on high. Even while the baby Jesus still rests in Mary's womb, Jesus is the one whose way will be prepared by his son, John, later known as John the Baptist, who himself had just been born. We'll talk more about him next week, but take note that Zechariah, John's father, would have known Malachi's prophecy by heart. And we see here that he clearly believed this prophecy we are studying today was being fulfilled in his time. That is, that Jesus would be the son of righteousness of whom Malachi spoke. An angel had told him as much. Our text today contains the last words of the Old, uh, uh, the, the last words of the old Testament um, of, of a prophet before Zechariah. 400 years, remember, had passed, silence. Now Zechariah here is prophesying. They waited. They'd waited and waited. 400 years. I mean, America's not even that old, right? That's a long time. Many had fallen away. People had fallen away. People couldn't wait that long. They just kind of gave up on the whole church thing, if you will. Proving they were not the true remnant. But now... Having heard from an angel, this priest, John's father, knew full well that it was time for the Son of Righteousness to burst forth into the world. Just a few months later, Jesus was born. The faithful looked forward to the coming of the Son of Righteousness who would bring healing in his wings. A few, like Zechariah, recognized the event while it was happening. There is always a remnant. But what about this phrase, with healing in its wings? Also from verse 2, the Hebrew word translated as wings here is also often translated in other places as the hem of a garment. 
Sort of like if we were to mention the tails of a tuxedo to someone learning English as a second language. We don't mean literal tails. We mean that, po that portion of the garment uh, that we refer to as tails. That's the kind of thing that can be lost in translation. And so likely the, this reference is better understood as the hem of, of a garment or, or of, a, of a robe, which is part of why the people believe that there would be healing in the garments of the Messiah of, or Christ. If you recall, one woman found healing by touching the hem of the robe Jesus was wearing, and this common belief was likely the reason for her effort. Her faith made her well. The fact that Jesus had healing in his wings or in his garments points to just one of hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Now, this image of Christ as healer also reminds us that while Jesus partially fulfilled all of this the first time he came, the kind of language used in Malachi, Malachi cannot have been mostly a reference to the first coming. Jesus did not bring ultimate healing the first time he came. A son of righteousness risen with healing in its wings is ultimately an end times reference. And these promises from God for the righteous will only be fulfilled completely at the second coming. See, the first coming was the beginning of the second coming. And we've really been in the end times ever since, even though it seems like a long time to us. To God, a day is like a thousand years. Keeping this all in mind, let's look at the last phrase of this, this verse, which says, And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. When the sun of righteousness comes in the clouds, dawning over us with eternal healing, you better believe there's going to be some skipping and dancing. A heavenly existence on a new earth will be a party like no other. And you won't need drugs or alcohol to manufacture temporary euphoria followed by depression until the next high. Instead, joy, peace, and utter contentment will be permanent. Why? Because we will have been completely healed spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically. We will be made new. And the older I get, the better that sounds. <laughs> During Malachi's time in Judah, the people would put the calves up in pens or stalls for the winter to keep them safe. If you know anything about calves, you know that they are nothing like cows. Now, cows seem to barely move. <laughs> if you're trying to raise one for beef, you hope they barely move. You don't want them running around. But calves run around like deer. They really do. And if you let calves out of a pen after months of being cooped up, you're going to see them skip and jump and kick and run and play like wild animals on a bright spring morning. What are we going to be like? What are we going to be like when we are freed from our old nature? How will we feel when sin is conquered and the devil and his minions are removed from our existence, when evil is purged and temptation is removed, how we will respond. When every addiction is gone and every sinful impulse vanishes and the light and the glory of Christ bursts forth on our faces like an eternal dawn breaking over the mountains, how will we react? God answers that question with an image from the farm. He says we'll be like calves released from a stall, kicking and running and playing and celebrating our new found freedom, a freedom that will last forever. I can almost smell the fresh spring grass and feel the warm sunshine on my face. In order to develop return reverence, you and I need to actually believe the righteous will be healed and illumined by Christ for eternity. If we really believe this, it changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, really, if we could hold this belief in our hearts and thereby to have the reverence for the return that we should have, how differently would we think and behave as Christians living in a lost and dark world? The sun of righteousness is coming with healing and with light. What does this mean for our worldview and how we respond to a darkening world? And it is darkening. Think about this. If you truly believe God sees every person as either righteous or wicked. If you truly believe that the wicked are going to be burned to ash. And if you truly believe that the righteous will be healed and delivered for eternity. Will your focus not change? Would you be living the way you are now? Would your greatest concerns be the same? Would your priorities not shift if you truly believe these things? 
For those of you in a go group, I'd encourage you to talk about this. Or for any of you, here's a good question to discuss over lunch. How would living in the light of these truths change my attitude toward a darkening world? For me, the first thing that comes to mind is the desire to join God in rescuing the perishing from the fire that is coming. See, folks, I once was wicked in God's eyes, utterly wicked, but then Jesus saved me. By the way, where did I hear about Jesus? At church. The Bible says faith comes by hearing the word of Christ, the gospel. Who do you need to tell? Who do you need to bring? And see, this is an important caveat I want to make sure that everyone hears. Though we are all in a position of righteousness or wickedness before God, all have the opportunity to become righteous in Christ. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. When I say God sees us all as righteous or wicked, that does not mean He sees the wicked as hopeless. Jesus said, whosoever will may drink of the living water. That said, revering the return motivates me to take that water to the nations by preaching the gospel, as we're all called to preach, so that many will turn to Christ and be made righteous by God. How much time do we have? We do not know. But revering the return also makes me think about getting ready myself, not by building bunkers. Jesus indicated it will matter somehow what He finds us doing when He arrives. Several parables. To that point, I'll close with one last verse of Scripture, some of which we read earlier, but I ask you to listen closely and take God's Word to heart from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. This was written almost 2,000 years ago. God has already shown so much patience toward us. How much more patience does he have? I don't know, but I beg you not to test the Lord in this because I truly believe his return could be today. This morning, the word of God has been preached in your hearing. There are at least two different types of responses that need to happen. Some of you need to renew your faith in what God has said is going to occur and let it change you. Others need to put their faith in Christ for the first time and to receive the righteousness that comes through faith. People come to the Savior when they fear God. There is a consuming fire coming, but there is also a way to be rescued from it. This way of escape cost God everything. He died on a cross to earn your pardon. Will you not receive His gift of salvation today? Before it is too late, won't you put your trust in the only one who can save you? Would you pray with me? Father, I pray right now for that one who isn't sure that they've ever had a life-changing moment to turning from darkness to light. We can call it repentance. It's, it's really just true faith when that includes repentance. Because if we really believe that you came and died on a cross for our sins, there will be sorrow for those sins. And there will be a desire to live differently. 
as we come to you. So right now, I just pray for a simple. Can we just make it simple once again? Like it used to be. Like John 3.16. Whosoever believes. It is that simple. It really, really is. Whosoever truly believes. That Christ is the Messiah, that God sent His only Son, that Jesus died on a cross for your sin. If you truly believe that, which will include receiving Him as your Savior, different ways we say it. Would you just surrender to Jesus today? Would you just say, I, I, I need that. Save me. Cry out to Jesus today in your heart, in faith, believing that, that He is and that He will and that He can save you. I believe you will be saved today. You will be, your name will be written in the book of life. You will no longer be seen by God as wicked, but as righteous because of the blood of Jesus, which covers your sin. Would you just surrender to Him today? Will it change your life? Oh, yes. When you give your life to Jesus, when you surrender to Him, it changes everything. Some of it will be gradual. Some of it might be immediate. But your eternal destiny has changed immediately. God, I pray that whoever may have made that type of decision today or even recently would understand that this is obviously, is it not obvious that if something like that has happened in your life, you wouldn't keep it to yourself. You'd want others to know. You'd want others to be impacted by it. You'd want others to have that happen for them. So I pray that whoever that is, Lord, that they'll let us know and we can talk about how they can make it public through baptism as you've directed us. But Lord, just help, uh, help us to move forward in our walk with you. I do sense, Lord, I sense that there have been people who have made decisions in this church and they've not let me know. I pray that they would so we can talk about next steps. Thank you for saving me. Thank you that I am seen by you as righteous somehow in spite of my sin because of Christ. And thank you that I don't have to be terrified of your return, but I can face your return with a sober reverence that says, for me, I can't wait. For others, I know I need to get out there and I need to talk to them. I need to help, help them come to Christ. Help us to do what we need to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.